Good afternoon and uh, welcome to episode eight of the uh, Political Tipster. So it's been quite a while since we had our last episode, uh, but quite frankly, that's because there've not been too many interesting uh, elections recently. So our last episode was on the German elections and uh, in the last few days or so, finally uh, a government agreement has been reached. There's going to be an unusual marriage between uh, the Social Democrats, the uh, uh, FDP, who are rather libertarian, and uh, the Green Party. And uh, so our prediction of the uh, traffic light coalition was correct. And uh, the vote share that we predicted for the Green Party was uh, also correct. So uh, happy to get uh, charted to on that one. Um, but uh, currently now, the, uh, the French Republican Party, which is uh, the centre-right party in France, currently having its uh, conference. And uh, in the next few days, or the next week or so, they'll be selecting their uh, official candidate to uh, represent the party. So uh, this will be the candidate that sort of presents itself as the man or woman uh, in the center of uh, Ma Macron and uh, Le Pen and uh, Eric Zemmour, who were further to the right. Um, and I'm very happy to uh, invite a special guest today. Uh, he's um, someone I followed for a long time on social media and admire a lot. Uh, please welcome uh, Mr. Frexit. <laughs> Hello, everybody. So, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? So, um, I'm active on Twitter since, um, I think, two years now. I, I've reached uh, about 15k followers, so that's not bad. Um, I, so, uh, of course, as the name says, says it all, I'm a, I'm a Frexit supporter. So, I support all the political parties who are are on our Eurosceptics, either either frankly directly uh, directly pro Frexit or or parties who criticize uh, the European Union but uh, don't for for tactical reason might not advocate for Frexit. Um, and yeah that's that's uh, what else I'm uh, what else I can say I'm uh, also supportive of the, um, uh, an association called uh, the Aristotle Circle that is a platform to, uh, to, to gather all the small sovereignist movement uh, in France and also um, is, um, how to say, is publishing um, and, and translating writers um, from all over the world on discussing the, the, the topic of sovereignty. Great. So yeah, thank you. Uh, so before we get into discussion, uh, as this is a, a right-wing primary, I have a small quote from uh, Charles de Gaulle, which I've tried to translate as best as I could. So uh, the general once explained that there were two types of right-wing: uh, the small, the petit nobility of the countryside and the wealthy classes. The first, in which he claims to be a part of 
is inspired by the highest forms of patriotism and ready to sacrifice everything for the glory of France or the good of the country. This also includes a large majority of the clergy. The second, the very rich, is much more individualist and selfish. He affirms that this includes the Parisian petit aristocracy, the elderly grand ladies who host receptions for adulating conquerors, coming from the same ilk as rich industrialists, corrupted by money. Um, so, Mr. Frexit, could you tell me a little bit about the Republican Party, what, what their history is, what, who they represent, and yeah. Uh, first of all, is a is quite interesting quote from from uh, General de Gaulle that I am not aware of. I, I I know a lot of a lot of other quotes that have uh, similar similar ideas behind. Like he said, for instance, that uh, the the French bourgeoisie is willing to to all compromise uh, to to give up all all uh, all main ideas uh, up. Uh, at uh, as long as as it allows them to continue to uh, to have dinner in nice restaurants, <laughs> uh, uh, it, yeah, it's quite similar. He, he criticized a lot his own his own people, the the, the, the because he's also a member of the bourgeoisie, yeah, not the high bourgeoisie, but he's also a member of them. So. So yeah, he criticized a lot. He also said something like the the populist, the not the populist, the how to say the populo. I don't know. I don't know in English how to say it. The the people, the the normal people know where the national interest is, whereas the bourgeois French bourgeoisie doesn't. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it, it, it goes along what you just said. So I'm not surprised of his quote. Uh, regarding the the your questions about the current uh, Republicans, French Republicans, so yeah, maybe a bit of history of what the the Republicans is is useful to understand a bit more. So the, the Republicans is a rebranding of another party called UMP that is Sarkozy rebranding it into the the name the Republicans, and before it was UMP. And UMP was a merger of two existing parties, the RPR, RPR which is uh, Eurosceptics, uh, hard on immigration, social conservative, like traditional conservative, uh, a bit more Christian, I would say probably, and um, and um, like. Uh, for lesser tax, but not free traders. Okay. If, if, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So it's like the, the state has a role to play in, in, uh, in strategic, strategic areas. So very patriotic, I would say. So this was RPR. And the main political figure of this party was uh, Charles Pasqua or, or, uh, or Philippe Seguin, who, yeah. who were the two of them. Uh, where a uh, prominent figure of the no in the Maastricht referendum of 1992. Yeah. Okay. So th this is RPR. And then the other one is UDF. And UDF is more Europhiles, uh, liberals, uh, 
kind of Christian Democrats as well, and uh, also for lower taxes, but uh, but more free traders. Mm. Even though, yeah, for, uh, free trade is not the main issue in, in France actually. So, so at the at the origin, at the birth of the Republicans is you have those two big uh, big parties who both had a president, by the way, because UDF had uh, Valéry Giscard d'Estaing and RPR had uh, Chirac as president. Ah, yeah. So, so it's like in the UK, if you had a, a bit of a kind, if, if I can compare, it's like a merger between the, some of the conservatives and uh, probably the, the Lib Dems, something like this. Probably, so a bit uh, like David Cameron, Cameron. yeah. <laughs> and Daniel Clegg, Paul, um, yeah. Nick Clegg, yeah. Nick Clegg, Nick Clegg sorry. <laughs> <laughs> My bad. Um, so this is the, the, the Republicans party. So it's a merger between two parties. And that makes it, um, as we say in French, uh, I don't know if you've seen this movie, but it's like a Spanish hostel. You know this movie? French no, movie. I don't, unfortunately. <laughs> so it's a movie talking about, um, uh, talking about Erasmus people, like gathering in one apartment, people coming from all over Europe. Like Spain, oh, okay, and so you have a you have a mix of people with totally different ideas and background, and so that's a uh, bit okay. what the Republicans, and that's their issue, is that it used to work in the past to have a broad spectrum of political ideas inside your party, because because the system was like one time is the socialist party, one time is the right, one time is you, one time so. It works if you have a mix of, uh, of ideology inside your party. But now that you have Macron and Le Pen, they kind of squeezed in between those two because the part of the Republicans, which is Eurofides, liberals and, uh, and Democrats, they, they tend to lean towards, towards mm. Macron. Whereas, whereas the other part that is more hot, hardcore, uh, uh, anti-immigration or more uh, more traditional conservative, they tend to lean towards the towards Zemmour and uh, and uh, and Marine Le Pen. Pen. Yes, so so that's that's the big issue for the Republicans today. Is what what do they stand for? What do they stand for? Well, what is their what is their main political ideology? It's very difficult to grasp now. Uh, and actually. Uh, in the pre up to the previous uh, presidential election, then uh, quite a lot uh, leave the party to join Macron and, and his government. Exactly, exactly. You yeah. had a lot of uh, after Fillon's failure. You had a few, a few, a few people of the Republicans who who just just left the party and moved to moved to Macron became became. Uh, minister of Macron's government, including the prime minister, the two prime minister, the the, the first one, uh, Edouard Philippe, and the new one, yeah. uh, Jean Castex. They are both coming from the Republicans. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so today, who would you say is the, their main 
uh, voting target who who actually votes Republican now if if anybody does still. <laughs> so um, so if you look at the at the polls, people supporting uh, the Republicans are are usually quite old. There is like yeah there there is a funny graph on uh, on Bertrand support rate. Bertrand is one of the main candidates of the Republicans. So the, there is a funny graph where where he he got the magical number of zero percent support rate amongst the eighteen to twenty five years old. So that, that that says a lot. That that says that the Republicans is not at all supported by young people. Is mm. they, they they rely on on the. Uh, people who have been voting Republicans forever and continue doing so because yeah originally is the is the Gould's party basically originally if you go back in history and so people keep on voting by habits I would say because they're yeah. used to it but not really not really um, not really knowing where do, what do they stand for and so it doesn't appeal to young people at all Mm, because yeah. young people, they either either they are like the startup nation type of people, and <laughs> like stats and and blah blah blah, and uh, people who are who are the winners of globalization, they vote for Macron, and then you have the the losers of globalization, and they support they support Le Pen, but you don't have much space in the middle. And I find and, it. Uh interesting actually that uh, younger people in in france tend to to vote more for uh marine le pen and the national or the um, rassemblement national a lot more than young people in britain tend to do now if i'm right oh, that's, that, that's something i i also uh, realized and that's quite interesting and actually zemmour has a uh uh, an analysis on this. He, he says, and I find pretty interesting, that young people in the, in, uh, in the UK, old people voted for Brexit a lot. And there are, are more um, uh, yeah, sovereignist. Whereas in France, it's the opposite. Old yeah. people are Europhiles. And they are, they are at all against, uh, against the Brexit. And he explained this because of history, because basically because the UK won is part of the winner of of this of the Second World Second World War, and so you have this mindset of of uh, of people being uh, being on uh, how to say yeah being uh, more patriotic more um, yeah. Or more willing to be independent, more sure of themselves, more optim—not optimistic, but more uh, confident more in themselves. History. Whereas in France, even though the goal put us in the side of the winners of the Second World War, the 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 reality is that France alone lost against Germany and needed need the help from 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 others. And so you have this mindset among all people that is, we cannot survive by ourselves, but we, we can't, uh, um, you can't do it alone, basically. Mm. 
So you need to have help from others. And therefore, they became very, very Eurofied. And, and they think that, yeah, they, they, they are afraid of Frexit because Frexit means, means you're alone. <laughs> no, <laughs> no longer rely on others. Which uh, seems to have been debunked in a sense with the global Britain uh, Brexit. Uh. Absolutely, it has, been, it has been debunked. And yeah, mm. that's why for, for a Frexiteer like me, uh, is a, Brexit is a, is, is a great uh, push for, for, for the development of Frexit in France. Because mm. it shows that one is possible and two, that is not the end of the world. <laughs> See, uh, but, uh, yeah but the thing is this is still there there is no um, there is no blood in the sea of the London <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the river in London <laughs> um, so let's uh, go into some of the main topics of this firstly this primary and then the, the, the election itself so who are the uh, candidates for the Republican? So for the Republicans, you have uh, five candidates, actually. But three of them have a chance to win, to win the election. The others are very unlikely. Yeah. And so among the three, you have Xavier Bertrand, who is, he's a, to best describe him, I would say is a, he's a center-right uh, François Hollande. You, you remember François Hollande? So yeah. This so he, he has the same shape, actually, same, same behavior, same. He's very much alike. He's Mr. Normal. Mr. Normal guy. He's like, if, if I can paraphrase uh, a quote from Nigel Farage, who said about Mr. Vermont Poy, that Mr. in the European Parliament, that he had the charisma of, of a low grade bank clerk <laughs> so yeah. for, for mr bertrand is like a, a low-grade insurance broker i would say <laughs> and I, actually he was an insurance broker in uh, in uh, um in 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 the past he was an insurance broker oh, okay but yeah. but very um so how how to say yeah uh Mr. Normal, Mr. He, he's president of one region like, of France. Uh, like a Keir, Keir Starmer sort of type uh, figure? Yeah, similar. <laughs> but, and and he's, he's president of one region of France, which is in the north of France. Yeah. So, so and that actually can, is a plus for him because he appeals to voters that is not only... Uh, how to say is not only the Parisian bourgeoisie. It's not she. She appears to different kind of voters because of this Mr. Normal kind of image that he has. He he has a rather humble background, if I'm right. Yeah, yeah. He has pretty humble background. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Humble background. He even failed to to reach the top top political school in France, Sciences Po. So yeah, she has a pretty humble background. Oh, okay. But yeah, she's and she's the highest ranked uh, in the polls amongst all of the other candidates. Yeah. But uh, but on the negative side for him is that he 
how to say, uh, it, beside the fact that he doesn't have much charisma, <laughs> the, <laughs> he he's also, um, he left the party. She left the Republicans and then came back. And this might be perceived by, by Republican members as a bit, not, how to say, not reliable. Disloyal. Yeah, exactly, disloyal. Exactly, that's the word. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's the first candidate, and that's the, the top seed of the Republicans mm. at the moment. Then you have, uh, you have Miss Pecress. Yeah. Pecress is not from a humble background. She's more of the classical bourgeoisie of uh, Neuilly, which is the, Neuilly-sur-Seine is like the, how do you say, is the, the upper, upper elite of, uh, of France. Is, is where Sarkozy was mayor before. So it's very wealthy area in, in west of Paris. Mm. And so she comes from there. And for her, I would call her the, the Ségolène Royal of the right. <laughs> <laughs> Another socialist candidate. But so she is president of Ile-de-France, the region. So you see Bertrand and Pécresse are both president of one region, which, is, uh, which shows that they can win elections. Um, and so she's president of Ile-de-France, and uh, where else? Yeah, she she went to all the major school, the the top uh, path, I would say, for political career in France, which is uh, HEC, which is the top business schools like like Cambridge or Oxford, similar, and then to Ecole Nationale of Administration, which mm -hmm. is the top top in in French politics. Wait. Um, which will soon be uh, uh, which will soon be closed now by uh, by Macron. Yeah, he's just rebranding it, and yeah, oh, she, okay. announced, she announced that he's going to close it, but I doubt so. He's like, yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> rebranding. Anyway, you will not change anything, even if he closes it, because because you will not change. It will be similar people that you put in charge <laughs> in the in in the state. So yeah, you yeah. change anything. And so yeah, Pécresse, she described herself as a two-third Angela Merkel, one-third uh. which was quite laughable. <laughs> first thing means absolutely nothing. What do you what does it mean to be one two-third Merkel and one third Thatcher? And plus on the Thatcher side, I guess she did not took she did not take the she did not take the sovereignty part. She, she only took the probably lesser tax <laughs> part yeah, yeah. of the thing. Another, another, another sorry, interesting point about Valérie Pécresse is that her husband is former head of Alstom Renewable Energy. So Alstom, I, I'm, not, yeah, I'm not sure if your audience has heard of the Alstom case where France basically sold one of their top company in um, nuclear energy to General to General Electric after to, after um, uh, after one of their the, the CEO of the Singapore branch was sent in, in prison for 18, 18 months in uh, in the US after a business trip on the charge of corruption in Indonesia. So it's like 
is a bit like the Huawei case about the, you know, about the 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 girl in who worked for Huawei and who was uh, oh, kept. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's a bit similar. And at the same time, where he spent time in prison, the the Department of Justice so charged Alstom for corruption, and then at the same time, General Electric did a. a a public offering trying to buy buy out uh, Alstom, and so yeah, you can you can think of a collusion between Department of Justice and General Electric wanting to uh, facilitate the buy off of of, of of Alstom by General Electric, and so Mr. Pécresse in this in this game was the the head of Alstom Renewable Energy and became a uh, General Electric head of Renewable Energy. Uh, so he made a jump in salary, massive jump in salary, and also he had stock options up to 2 million euros, according to a French newspaper. So, uh, <laughs> how to say? Sleaze. Yes, is if I, I would not bet on Valet Pécresse uh patriotism i would say <laughs> corporate corporate patriotism because yeah because of, of this story mm -hmm. um so yeah that's that's it for pecres and then you had the yeah the one that the british audience knows the best which is mr barnier or the french joe biden as i call him because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, She's been in politics for ages. She's like MP since 1970-something, I forgot. And um, yeah, Brexit, I mean, she's been a, a European commissioner and so on. She never, so on the plus side for him is he never left the Republicans. So he's Mr. Loyal. But. Uh, unlike I, the two of Sorry? You're, but you're correct me on this, but uh, I heard that apparently that the stuff being leaked that uh, he had asked uh, Macron to be the head of his list uh, for uh, Macron's party in the last uh, European elections. Yeah, he wanted support of Macron to be on the in the commission. Oh, that's it. Yeah. yeah. So, and also if you if you look at so that's family, but still, is his son campaigned for European MP in Belgium, uh, and worked for as an assistant of Macron's party, as yeah. an, a Macron's party member. So he's linked also to Macron. So when he claims to be a to be opposite figure of Macron and to be doing completely different, if he gets into into the in into presidency, you, you can dot it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Mr. Barnier, quite quite funny that he became <laughs> he became popular in the actually amongst the the Republican voters that I know. Yeah, he became quite popular a bit, a bit yes. more popular than two others because also Pécresse left the party as well. So both Barnier and Bert, uh, both Bertrand and Pécresse left the party. And then return just to get the support for the election. Yeah. So yeah. 
those are seen as disloyal, whereas, whereas Bonnier always remained in the party. And uh, just to uh, just to tell the audience, actually, the the vote itself, the primary vote, is just amongst uh, Republican members. Uh, I know in the past France has had open primaries, um, but uh, this year they chose just to have uh, Republican candidates uh, voting for the candidate, Republican yeah. members voting for the candidates. Yeah which makes it more unpredictable because mm. yeah because yeah they don't want to repeat the fillon because fillon was a was an open primary and so you had a lot of people from outside of the party who voted as well yeah which is i mean it just sounds silly to me because you're opening the doors for sabotage uh, there was a bit but the, not so much actually mm. and, new new people joining joining only to vote for the worst candidate <laughs> possible less possible it happened a bit but i don't think it changed uh it changed the election okay um so the first topic i, I wanted to talk about which um which has been very important probably the most important uh in France for the last few years, um, and where I feel as if France has very much swung towards the right on this topic is uh, immigration. Um, so just a few policies that have been thrown about by these candidates. So uh, uh, Philippe Juvin, who's another less known candidate, he wants to withdraw from Schengen and create Schengen too. Barnier himself wants a uh, moratorium, which is a complete ban of three to five years on immigration. And he also talks about uh, a constitutional shield so that uh, he can override EU constitutional superiority uh, to then introduce new laws to facilitate expulsions and uh, illegal regulation. Um, which we, we've seen a lot in the news recently about the Poles, the Polish trying to uh, to override uh, EU constitutional superiority. Um, and then just Pécresse, Valérie Pécresse, wants to stop uh, all immigration from countries which refuse to take back uh, deported citizens. So I think she, she mentioned uh, Pakistan, I think uh, France recently has been on bad terms with Algeria as well. And uh, another of the smaller candidates, um, uh, COT, wants to remove le droit du sol, the, the right of the, the earth, uh, which is for immigrants who were born in France, I believe, from a... Uh, yeah, exactly. Like automatically get citizenship when you are born in, in France. Okay. So... Um, yeah, Mr. Frexit, um, has it surprised you just how far to the right the front has become on a question like immigration? And I'm thinking about the emergence of Eric Zemmour as well on the political scene. It actually is linked to, to the emergence of, of Zemmour. Because, okay, why do all those center-right candidates are, are having a, a hard line on immigration now. 
the reason is is both the is is double is you have one is they need to distinguish themselves from macron and the problem is for them that on everything else they are quite similar they will do the same so on even even on the on the health crisis they they, they advocate similar policies yeah, but on on the economy on the the retirement pension reform on all of this the age limits all of this they kind of agree with with macron and their electorates agree with macron so the only only issue where they can different them they can differentiate themselves from macron is on immigration so so that's one and the second reason is because the 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 rate the rise of Zemmour in the where he moved from five percent to seventeen percent in a couple of months, which is massive, mm. massive, unbelievable rise, he is eating up the electorate. Is he's he's like eating part of their electorate as well as so Zemmour is eating up part of their electorate as well as Le Pen electorate. The old uh, RPR electorate. Exactly, exactly. She's taking part of the old RPR, and so uh, and because of this, they are kind of uh, of chasing him now, like running after him on on the topic of immigration because they don't want to because he's so hardcore on immigration they don't want to sound too weak, and so they need to <laughs> push forward strong policies. So both to differentiate from Macron and to not let their electorates too much move to be or being attracted by the more. Okay. And that's why they advocate for this. But the funny thing is that what credibility do they have to on this? Because first is like a, a Christmas wish list. Because what's <laughs> the what's the probability of this being accepted by all the EU member states. So it's like, yes, you advocate for a Schengen 2, for instance. That's Juvin, as you mentioned. You advocate for Schengen 2, but first of all, what is Schengen? We explain what is Schengen 2. And second is you need all the other member states to agree on this in order to go forward, mm. which is not going to happen because different member states have different interests, even on, on, on Schengen, even on the free movement of population. Because for instance, you have, I don't know, the Polish who will need to send some some of their workers in other countries. They have and, a lot of um, detached uh, truck drivers who, who work in, yeah. in the West of Europe. Yeah. Exactly, and so they don't want to change the, the detachment law, for instance. They, they don't want to change this. So they are advocating something that there is a super high chance or 99% chance that is not going to be accepted by other EU member states. So it's almost it's similar. You can compare all of their proposal to what David Cameron proposed before the referendum, before Brexit. Mm -hmm. he, he, he said, I'm going to renegotiate with the EU. I'm going to uh, put forward a proposal that they will, they will accept. And in the end, they did not, <laughs> and so, and so, yeah. So you had um, no chance but to. But um, 
leave the EU. So it's, it's very similar. It's, they make proposal that is completely, um, completely, how do you say, uh, not realistic at all. Yeah. But uh, could we not, uh, for example, take an example of uh, Denmark, possibly Poland, these countries seem to have been able to control their immigration whilst being in the EU. Do, do you have to have a Frexit in order to control immigration or is it possible to control mm. within the EU? Um, so, yeah, that's, that's actually a good question because, yeah, you have counterexample like Hungary, Poland or yeah, Denmark as well. But first, first of all, Denmark uh, negotiated uh, opt out before joining the, the mm. EU. So it's easy to negotiate when you are negotiating to join and you don't want to join everything. It's not easy to negotiate while you're already in and you say, I want to have special rights now. <laughs> I want to change what, ha what happened before and have special treatment compared to other countries because yeah, if, if they accept for France to give exceptions, then a lot of countries will say the same and say like, why, why only France? So, so that's, that's one is Denmark has exceptions because they negotiated before. Second is for Poland and Hungary is the, the, the difficulty is that their situation is completely different from, from France because Hung, if you take Hungary is particularly telling is is not a country of people wanting to migrate into. Is is a mm. country where people are actually leaving <laughs> Hungary, and therefore is is a is a bit of a joke to how to say. It's, yeah, it's not a good example. And plus, plus the how to say they go into a conflict with the European Union constantly but only in order to negotiate better deal with the European Union. Yeah. Is that they never go up to the point where they are at risk of, of leaving the EU. And then also, if you look at what Hungary is voting for in the European Parliament, uh, I, mean, I mean, Orbán's uh, ministers or Orbán's party member, is they go along with the EU quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. Quite often they go along. So... They are just, uh, as we say in French, the passager clandestin. I don't know how you can translate that. Uh, we'll say something like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah, don't know. <laughs> so they they are just they just want to get to get more by by yeah. constantly being in a fight with the EU. They know that they can get more out of the EU. Because don't forget that. They are a net beneficiary from being yeah. a member of you financially. They are net beneficiary, whereas France is uh, is uh, net deficit. Uh, exactly, we are a net deficit, so we give more to the EU than we receive. Same as what the UK was before before leaving. Same and its Germany. price has increased even more for the French since we left as well. Exactly, exactly. Our contribution to the EU increased. Thanks to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, come and join us, and uh, you won't have that problem anymore. And and yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and so, so yes, the um, 
is that you cannot really uh, go along with Poland and all those countries in order to in order to to control migration in France. For instance, the asylum seeker laws is all engraved in EU treaties or the, the Amsterdam reunion exactly the family reunion you know when you have a worker in one given country wanting his family to join yeah so their work okay is uh, family reunion is also engraved in in European treaties so all of this when you see those proposals from the Republican candidates, I'm like, but okay, yeah, that sounds nice. It's like a Christmas wish list, but do you do you understand what are the consequences of your proposal until are you willing to go in direct confrontation with the EU on the on this and to for instance to disobey some of the treaty? And what's going to happen next, which is is something that they never say. So well, what, like, what's so funny? Be, sorry, just because you said the disobey, it reminds me of the Remain campaign, who was saying uh, they had the slogan. Well, some of the left wing Remainers said that Remain and rebel. Um, but what's funny is since uh, 2011, actually, uh, the European Court of Justice. That, that anybody disobeying against uh, the EU recommendations can receive a fine of up to 0.2% of GDP. So remain mm. and rebel is a myth because if you do rebel, then I, I believe for France, it would be the equivalent of having to pay around 4.4 billion uh, euros every time you do try to disobey. So it's just yeah. not possible today. Is 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 not working mm. but might convince your people to go on, to go along with the frexit then it's like you can enter a confrontation and then that that creates the conditions for having a frexit referendum for instance mm. so that would be interesting even as a as a frexit frexiteer as as i am it would be interesting to see someone who is really truly wanting to com to confront the eu on on any given issue on immigration in that case but on other issue as well because and you can create conditions that leads to a frexit and that's something that uh, possibly eric zemmour could be uh, exactly that that figure exactly so yeah um there is this new the, the the, the the rise of Zemmour could be could be that that candidate because um, it could be that case because uh, he's he has been advocating for similar policies on migration for the past thirty years first of all mm. so can at least you can say that at least he is consistent which is not the case of all the Republican candidates it's like the 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 most hilarious case is Barnier how can Barnier be to <laughs> advocating for a constitutional shield against European, European laws and European Court of Justice when he was for, for a huge part of his career a European commissioner and advocating for the opposite, <laughs> advocating against uh, constitutional, constitutional shields from other countries 
and defending European interest or claiming to defend European interest. This is just uh, not, not, not consistent at all. So you cannot really trust that if you vote for, for Barnier, she's going to do any, and she's going to enter any confrontation with the EU. So, yeah. So for Zemmour, it's different because, first of all, he has been a Eurosceptic for all his life. And she voted no in the, she voted no in Maastricht Treaty. She voted no in the 2005 European Constitution. She was a big, a good friend with Charles Pasqua and, and Philippe Seguin, two prominent figure of the no uh, in, in 1992 and 2005. Although, um, although uh, recently um, uh, Christophe Lagarde claimed that uh, if Pasqua was alive today, he would uh, shoot Zemmour uh, in the head. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was preposterous. <laughs> Crazy. Completely crazy from the yeah that that's where you see that somebody who who really go against the the, the main narrative on on specific issues will face well she's making them lose their nerve basically he's they are the the lot a lot of commentarians com, uh, commentators or all the politicians are completely losing their nerve when they speak about speak about the more yeah. why why i think it's because he doesn't he doesn't uh, how do you say he doesn't back off basically he doesn't he, he, she say i don't care about being uh, being evilized how, do you say that in english i'm not sure uh, villainized yeah being demonized being demonized sorry so he doesn't. He say, "I don't care being demonized because it's you, uh, you choosing how and who do you demonize." So I'm, I'm not going to, to, uh, to follow your rules, basically. And, uh, and, and I, I can think of another case with the French journalist uh, who posted a video drawing a Hitler mustache on Zemmour, despite his uh, Jewish. Origins as well. Yeah, is a uh, more uh, more of a comic than a journalist, but yeah, oh, okay. And also paid by the by taxpayer money because is um, is a public public. Uh, she Servant. works on public radio. Yeah. And so so yeah, she can draw a Hitler mustache on the more port the more face with very little consequences mm. which is just completely complete nonsense when you know that Zemmour is from is Jewish yeah and from, from Algerian origin so so yeah uh, Zemmour is interesting for this is that he's making making them lose, lose their nerve and and he's clearly um, willing to to enter a fight with the EU, he mm. say, "I'm willing to get out of the uh, out of the European Court of Justice." Which, you, yeah, you can argue how he's going to do that, but uh, at least he knows that he needs to confront European law and European judges. And so he say, "I'm willing to disobey, and if they sanction me, I'm not going to pay." <laughs> this kind of thing. <laughs> so. 
he knows that he needs to confront European, uh, yeah. European laws and he's willing to do it. And then he say he even say what is what is the what is Brussels going to do? Do they have <laughs> any any tanks? Is yeah. are they going to I are they going to send tanks to France? <laughs> he said that once. I I so I say the same really for uh, for Northern Ireland is uh, if we did pull out of the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol, what are the EU going to do about it? Will they have uh, military on the Irish uh, border? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's that's what I, I don't understand. Is actually we're in a I think in a much stronger uh negotiating position than we think and uh... exactly exactly because the eu is nothing is it's just a it's just a club so yeah the owner of the club has not much power over you just... <laughs> and, and actually you can see that with boris johnson because as long as he was committed to 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 brexit then he got pretty quickly what the concession from the eu from, yeah. from Bob and, and the likes. So it's like, you, when the only reason why it took so long to the, the UK to leave the EU is because you had a prime minister who did not really want it to. Yeah. Did not really yeah. Want it. She was not really committed to, I mean, Theresa May was not really committed to, to she was a Remainer. So she, she did not believe in Brexit and was not willing to, to go for no deal. In 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 uh, uh, if that was necessary, whereas when you have somebody who say I'm willing to go for no deal no matter what, then the EU changes perfect perspective quite quickly. And we had so, the the Ben uh, Let's Win uh, law as well, which actually uh, made no deal Brexit illegal originally, yeah, exactly. which breaks my heart because uh, Hillary Ben is the son of Tony Ben, who was a prominent. Uh, Labour, you're a skeptic. So uh, I think that's something that the the British have quite easily forgotten, and that they shouldn't do is the the level of sabotage that the the elite of um, of our parliaments and our civil service were were ready to uh, to enact to to stop Brexit, and uh, it's something we've got to keep in mind because uh, Brexit isn't finished yet. There's a lot of uh, loose uh loose strings that need to be tied in the next few years and it's, it's something we should remember yeah absolutely i absolutely agree with this but, uh, but just to to comfort you a bit is we have an even worse case because in <laughs> france because because uh, at least in the end they went through the brexit went through and and you respected the result of the referendum yeah but for our case, our case, the 2005 um, uh, European Constitution referendum was, simp was simply ignored. And, I mean, two, two years later, Mr. Sarkozy proposed uh, the Lisbon Treaty, which is a just a rebranding of the European mm. Constitution. It is exactly the same treaty, even according to uh, some of the people who drafted it, see, like Mr. Um, uh, yeah, he he said it's the same box of of uh, of pencils that you 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 arrange them in different orders. <laughs> it's cut like uh... yeah, cut the flag, cut mm. the anthem, 
but the rest is the same. So, so yeah, I, I, from a French perspective, is I kind of admire the British political class. I mean, part of it because they because they decided to. I mean, they they followed what the the referendum the the referendum results. And, yeah. And, they respected the voice of the people much more than than the French did. Eventually, yeah. Eventually. <laughs> after, after a strong battle. After a strong battle from the crowd. Mm. Uh, yeah. So let's move on to another important subject, which has really plagued the uh, Macron uh, premiership, and that is uh, pension reforms. Um, so the Republican candidates pretty much agree I, when I was watching the debate, they said, oh, yeah, we're the same as Macron, but we're actually going to do it. Um, so there's a general consensus amongst Republicans that uh, the French have no incentive to work as they receive higher uh, benefits than, than wages, supposedly. So they propose to increase the retirement age from is it 60 to maybe 64, 65? Um, 65, yeah. And then increase working hours from 35 to 40 hours a week and also a, a major reduction in, uh, in tax and uh, corporation tax as well. Um, so, yeah, th this has been, this was probably one of the, the big points of the the Macron premiership um, why for the French is is this such an important uh, subject um, because first of all we've been talking about the retirement reform for ages since uh, since I'm born almost we've been talking about, <laughs> about retirement reform since Juppé as prime minister, since, uh, yeah, ages ago. So the idea is because the retirement pension is not, uh, how do you say, um, is losing money every year, basically. And the reason being is that our retirement uh, system is, um, is not a capitalization system, is um, uh, is a repart uh, is how to say is redistributive exactly redistributed system Me meaning meaning that uh, meaning that the people working now are paying pensions for the people retiring now that was that was clever at the end of the of, of, at the the end of second world war because you had a lot of old people who lost lost all the, most of their properties and who had not much and so you needed to and, and you had no no capital to pay for that for their pension so at that time it was a smart system designed which is to to say the people working now we're gonna we're gonna pay tax and this tax is going to be used to pay for retirement for retirement people but it worked when you have an active population that is way bigger than the people retiring <laughs> and mm. the, the is that you, the same everywhere and in, in, in Europe and in, in developed countries is you have a more and more of an aging population and plus this we have a very high unemployment rate for various reasons mm. and, and therefore 
the the people supporting uh, the retired is less and lesser, and so the system is more and more in deficit, more and more unstable. So from there, you have a few options. Basically, is you need to to rebalance the, the system either by by making the pensions smaller, then that's not very popular. Mm. Or, or to make people work more, so that's that's more popular. Or to, or to say you need to re-put people in work and you need to, to like uh, reduce unemployment, put people at work and uh, and recreate wealth basically to be able to mm. afford the retirement of other people but uh yeah but that's that's difficult and so they chose the the easiest way that they find which is to increase um, increase retirement age but uh, that makes it sometimes ridiculous because let's say if uh, you're working at a company and at 55 you're you're fired very difficult for you to find another another job after so how is going to help the system by just increasing increasing um, retirement age is not going to help if if you, if nobody is willing to hire you again when you're fired at uh, and, and 50 plus so so yeah and so then the retirement pension has been an issue for for years and macron proposed the reform but then was um was how to say disturbed by by covid covid crisis basically mm. and therefore he put it on the post he posed his reform saying that it's not the moment to add some uh, key postponed the uh, the the retirement reform but doesn't mean he doesn't mean he's not going to is not cancelled it's just postponed oh, okay right. so and uh, and you were talking about uh, the unemployment and how it's so high in France. Uh, why do you think that is? Uh, because it's it's been a long time now the, that that uh, French unemployment is. So French unemployment to me has many has many reasons, many reasons, and one of them, a big one, is that we have a, a currency that has value that doesn't match the competitiveness or of our economy. Is because we don't have our own currency anymore, so we we, are, we have to share the euro with the rest of the of EU members. I mean, some of the rest of EU members, and that is an issue because the euro is like a is like a shoe size uh, size ten that you're forcing everybody to wear, <laughs> but but some of some of the people have are are the actual size of the feet of, of some of the some of the some some people are eight and some other are 12 so for for germany for instance the euro is an undervalued dutch mark so 
because they share with economies that are not as competitive as, as the German economy, it put, down the value, it put down the value of the euro because of Greece, because of Italy, because of all those countries that are weaker than Germany. So it, it, it put pressure downwards to the value of, of, of the... But then for other, for other countries, it's the opposite. For Greece, for instance, the euro is totally overvalued for the competitiveness of their economy. So you have a currency that doesn't match the competitiveness of all. I mean, part of the part of the super huge uh, trade surplus of Germany is because they are they are um, in top position, in leading position in some industries like chemical and industrial and. Uh, in, in cars, but part of it is also because they have a currency that is not properly valued. And also yeah. uh, free, free market uh, fundamentalism and competition is, is engraved into the EU exactly. treaty. So I think it's Article 63 of the Treaty of the Functioning of the European Union prohibits all restrictions on the movement of capital uh, exactly. within the EU, but not only that, so, um, it, yeah. it, it sets the customs at just 2.4% for uh, countries outside the EU. So, for example, you could import uh, products from Africa um, for a much lower price and you're only going to have a 2.4% uh, customs rate. So th there's no protection yeah. at all of, of Europe now. Yeah, there's there's protectionism is forbidden in the in the EU in any any ways. So yeah, for instance, if you want to uh, to give privilege to made in France product, then the EU is gonna is gonna ban this for you because you cannot decide to uh, to give give uh, uh, to uh, how do you say. Um, um, to to choose choose uh, choose French product over over other um, mm. European products. So, in, in even even for public spending like administration, for instance, if I find I find completely ridiculous when the administration is not uh, is not choosing to work for French companies because to to work with french companies because mm. it's taxpayer money in the end so my taxpayer money is used for instance for um for the the, the uh, education national education system they are, are using uh, microsoft or or or, or google and and so my taxpayer money is used to to pay for for foreign companies basically so <laughs> so that's not really that's not really beneficiary to french people whereas if you say okay maybe not 100% but maybe we, we reserve 50% of our our administration spending reserved for french companies then you help is like a it's like a win-win mechanism because you 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 help your local economy and 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 they give taxes as well whereas yeah. where all those big companies they will try to avoid paying taxes 
op, yeah, have their have their regional headquarter in Ireland or in Luxembourg, and then they managed to pay a very limited amount of tax. So all of this is all of this is forbidden in the EU, like giving privilege to French companies or. And this brings us on. Oops, sorry. Yeah, uh, types of protectionism is, is forbidden. So all hmm. of this is an issue because I'm, I'm not against free trade, but free trade has to be between countries that have similar, similar standards, similar environmental yeah. standards, social standards, and, um, and similar, similar labor law, for instance. But when you are in a free trade, in direct free trade with country with totally different uh, level of development, then you, you end up polarizing the two economies and you end up, um, how do you say is that, that's what globalization and the EU have been doing to our economies, which is to, to strip create, it. Yeah, strip and, and um, how, how do you say, I think is um, uh, David Goodhart, who said is uh, um, globalization is like uh, uh, taking money out of the poor of Western economies to give to rich of, of poor economies. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's like you create new rich in uh, in in developing countries, but by getting rid of your of your lower classes in the West. And so you see these massive waves of, of workers who have lost their job in the West yeah. and who vote for populist parties now. Uh, a lot of people, when they talk about globalization, you always hear the same, uh, <clears throat> like the fear of China, but uh, ironically, 60% of economic social dumping happens of the world's economic social dumping happens within the EU itself. So exactly. actually the majority of French industries aren't going to, to the Chinese. Uh, they're, they're mostly going to uh, uh, the Eastern European countries uh, within the EU, facilitated mm -hmm. by the EU. Yeah, absolutely. But before, um, in the 1950s, during the the glorious 30s, the Tante Glorieuse, uh, I believe the customs were set at around 18% under De Gaulle because uh, his, uh, he was an agricultural and industrial protectionist at heart. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and and, and uh, yeah, giving privilege to his own industry and having also uh, at, at that time the, the European market was a protectionist market outside, was a, inside was free traders between Germany, Luxembourg, uh, Netherlands, and uh, Italy was a, a free trade zone, but outside there was external tariffs to protect the, the inside market. Mm. which is no longer possible in the in and uh, this, this brings us nicely onto our last uh, uh, topic uh, in reindustrialization so there's a common consensus amongst the, the republicans but also marine le pen of 
many of the left-wing candidates as well, uh, that the, there's a need for a, a reindustrialization in France. Um, is this possible within the, the EU at all, or is, uh, is Frexit a must if we want to reindustrialize the country? Yeah, that's my personal view, is that it goes along with what we've been saying just previously, is that there's a lot of things if you want to reindustrialize France that are not possible inside the EU. So at the end of the day, you will need to come from the EU or get, rid, get, rid, get out of the EU in order to do all of this. Because so far, what they claim is that just by lowering a bit taxes here and there, like getting rid of uh, some of the pr production taxes, then they will, they will make uh, um, France more, f f French industry more competitive. And that then it will, it will by itself reindustrialize France. But here you see there is not very, really a, a, a long-term planning on what industry do they want to favor or all of this is, is just, um, how do you say, is very cosmetic measures. They will not change the, the fundamentals. And the fundamentals is the, is the EU and the euro is the fundamentals. And to actually for, for reindustrializing France, I think the euro is more problematic than the EU itself. Both both are very problematic problematic. And uh, recently uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, unveiled uh, a big uh, long term uh, it was sort of in the, the Gaulliste uh, spirit of long term. Yeah. Uh, strategy and state intervention. You wanted to build many nuclear reactors. Is 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 this believable or is this uh, an election stunt? It is election. It is part of the en même temps. At the same time, Macron's slogan, which she she used to, she keeps on using, and he, she used to use a lot to say that I take the best of both. But at the end, uh, both yeah. right. But at the end. Quite often, this this uh, best of both end up being completely oxymoron, completely. So, mm. so it's a good example for for nuclear reactors because he, yeah, she wants to build nuclear reactors in the long term. So first, she needs to be reelected to do that. <laughs> but um, uh, but even if he is, at the same time, he also closed down uh, some some nuclear nuclear plant in France just before, just the, the last year. So it's like, where do you stand? She's doing a bit. Macron is like a is like a snake. He's very difficult to catch. It's like you don't know where he is. She keeps on moving here and there. She keeps on saying one thing, and then the next day, total opposite. Um, she, she, yeah, doesn't have really a, a ideological spin, so he can say whatever. Yeah. and it's very difficult to to basically trust what he said. So yeah, you. you advocate for more nuclear reactors but at the same time she is the one who is responsible for selling Alstom to General Electric because he was <laughs> she was um, uh, convincing Hollande to sign the deal at, the, at that time she was when he uh, was an uh, economic minister 
Exactly. She was economic minister and he signed the deal. Uh, I mean, she, yeah, she advocated to Holland. He convinced Holland to sell. Uh, speaking of Alcimaxi, one thing which is often forgotten in the debate was that uh, around the 2003 uh, Brussels actually sued the French government for having uh, bailed out for Alstom um, because, which is again forgotten, is that uh, I think it might be Article 107 of the EU Constitution or, or pretty much outlaws state aid to private companies. So if you think of the old Gaulliste, uh, what, we, what he used to call dirigis, uh, where he, the state would invest uh, heavily into French industries, it's just not possible now. And actually uh, the EU has the power uh, to actually fine and sue countries or governments uh, just for, um, for investing into their industries because it's seen as unfair competition within the single market. Mm, absolutely. And w w with the current law of the EU, actually creating Airbus will be impossible because Airbus is a merge of two national monopoly, which is French monopoly and, and German monopoly on, mm. on And so today, if you try to create Airbus, it will be banned by the EU for, for creating a monopoly, creating for, for against uh, uh, their, uh, their competitive competitor, uh, competitor's law, something like this. Mm. Mm. Uh, and also uh, not forgetting that uh, state spending is severely restricted with the, the fact that uh, your deficit cannot exceed uh, 3% of GDP. Mm. Um, so I, I believe in, in the times of De Gaulle, the small inflation was, was sacrificed in order to invest in public services and industry but uh, now it just it just wouldn't be possible again absolutely but i mean deficit is you have good deficit and bad deficit deficit if it's an investment is, is beneficiary i mean could be beneficiary not necessarily because you also have bad investment but could in, it could be a good investment and if you develop a new industry and if you um, that, that's positive, but if you use this deficit only to pay, to to make to make the government going and to pay for, for, for the yeah the to make make government going, then that's not necessarily good deficit because mm. it's not productive money. It's, uh, it's just just money to make it going. So. And. So, yeah, uh... All of this not possible in the EU yet. Even though, even though, for the for the three percent deficit, there is a lot of exceptions because we haven't been respecting that law that much. That and uh, I'm not aware of uh, many, um, many how do you say of, uh, of of fines being being sent to France because of this. Well, from what I've seen, it, it tends to be uh, when there's a government that the EU likes, they tend to go easy on them. But when the, the Five Star Movement and Salvini 
were uh, put into power in Italy. The first budget, actually, uh, it, in, it promised increase in, in pensions and uh, uh, increase in spending in public services, but the deficit would have remained at 2.9%, but the EU still uh, rejected their budget. Uh, so it seems to me they, they just pick and choose for who, whomever is their ally and whomever isn't. They have their, their favorites. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so because this is a, a British, uh, mainly British public, uh, let's just quickly talk about uh, current Anglo-French relations. So mm. we've had two controversies recently, the first being the uh, AUKUS. Uh, submarine nuclear submarines where essentially France and Australia had agreed uh, a deal worth uh, remind me how much uh, several billion I think it was 56 billion yeah, billion, billion, yeah 50 plus billion so France would build nuclear submarines for Australia but uh, out of the blue uh, the Australian Prime Minister, along with Joe Biden, Boris Johnson, called a press conference and announced that uh, they had essentially stolen mm. that deal. Um, yeah, what, what happened? Um, I think it's a realignment of, of, uh, of the world, actually, because the Anglo-Saxon world has, has decided that China is the main main uh how do you say rival main rival main opponent and therefore they you see this reshaping of uh, i mean the, this old alliance that is directed towards china today that's that's actually the only issue in the u.s where everybody agrees republicans and democrats agree on one thing which is china and and so therefore the uh, want to uh, to contain the the influence of China in the Pacific Ocean in uh, Asia Pacific. Sorry, yeah, Pacific Ocean. Mm. And 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 so this this uh, AUKUS is part of that. It's part of re reunifying the old Anglo-Saxon alliance against against the China, and also. Uh, and so, and so that was that was the background of that that at, at the back of the mind of people who changed their mind of the of the on this deal with the with France, with the French government, uh, with French company building uh, uh, building vessels, nuclear submarines. And, yeah, nuclear submarines. Sorry, and and so it reminds me that we don't have. If if I want France to get out of, of the EU, is not I don't want to join a, another alliance of people who don't necessarily have same interest because I disagree that the that they, of this new Cold War. I, I I don't think that there is a new Cold War. I, I think is overplayed mm. by 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 the US that is not happy to be contested. But um, how do you say? Um, but yeah, China is becoming more influential, and that's that's a, mm. a given. Fact. 
something that we need to we need that the world need to accept so i i want france to have more of a gaullist perspective on this which is non-aligned uh country which is i don't want france to abide or to follow the us in whatever whatever um, adventure they, they are engaging in with with china i don't want to take a side on on china and uh, and the us and i think the rhetoric that the us is, is going to is do is having towards china is not beneficiary for the world uh, and saying that it doesn't mean that i endorse uh completely the chinese government and completely the what china is doing yeah. there. Uh, it is just that I think this is what is going to define the the the, the rest of the I mean the 21st century is this rivalry between the US and China and I think that France has a voice and is is listened to when it is not aligned is exactly the same as the as during the Cold War is France has a had a voice and was respected because we say no to the US in many times or, yeah, or we yeah. were in the Iraq war for instance the only country mm. who believed who voted no in the at the in the European in the United Nation? Um, so who opposed? Well, France was the only one of the few countries opposing the uh, Iraq intervention, and so it's so it's pretty much the same. I would like France. I, I was not surprised of this move from the Australian government because I saw this realignment of, of countries towards the U.S. All, all against China, but uh, France government was a bit naive in in, uh, in not for, um, anticipating that the, the, uh, this move. And then, what is even worse is French reaction, French government reaction towards this. This was really ridiculous to me because it's clearly the U.S. doesn't respect France in this in this case at all. They, he treat us as a the U.S. Tr government treats France governments as a, a pet, almost. It's like a, and reminds me of a quote from General de Gaulle again, who said, "The Americans, you need to you need to look at them directly in the eyes. After <laughs> after a while, they get used to it." And and that's probably true. Is I think American governments only respect people who confront them. Mm. It doesn't mean that we are not a, a lie uh, anymore. I don't. I don't want to engage in war with the U.S. It's just, <laughs> it's just you need to sometimes. Uh, like I would have, uh, if I was French government, I would probably have done a maneuver with the, with the Chinese uh, naval, navy, Chinese navy in the Asia Pacific, and I can tell you that the U.S. government would change <laughs> quite quite. <laughs> Or, or I would have given asylum to Edward Snowden, for instance, <laughs> or, or, or to yeah Julian Assange. Give yeah. asylum to Julian Assange and Edward Snowden in France. Then I can ensure you that the, the American yeah. government look at us very differently and will respect you more. And, and yeah, so so that's the background of this story. But this story is where is the how to say is the tip of the iceberg. It's just one example of the many where the U.S. doesn't really respect its its allies. And because you mentioned the, the sort of Gaullist uh, mentality on this, so just just to remind 
the listeners is uh, uh, when he came into power, the uh, goal invested a lot in nuclear power. And once he obtained uh, nuclear arms, uh, then he withdrew from NATO. And it wasn't until around, was it 2008 when France uh, re-entered NATO? To be more precise is um, De Gaulle did not get out of NATO. He get out of the, um, the commandment of NATO. So a, bit, a slight difference. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, and Sarkozy in 2008 rejoined the integrated command, commandment of NATO. Okay, and and that that could be a reason why uh, France wasn't uh, dragged into the Iraq War as well, and since then they've been dragged into to Libya and uh, Syria and other conflicts like this. Is also because you had a. It's not necessarily because you're part of NATO. It's also because you had a shift in since Sarkozy. You have a reshuffle of the foreign affairs cabinet and now is all mostly led by uh, diplomats or, uh, or uh, civil service uh, uh, who are who are atlantist who are pro pro who are no, very yeah. much supporting the supporting the us and so you had this move yeah this ungolist move of the syrian war <laughs> the iraq war and the the, the libyan war Totally, totally disastrous moves. Yeah, yeah. Who turned then, out to be to be what a lot of people were saying before is like it's going to create a mess. You're going to destroy an existing country. So the, the, today, if you think about Iraqis, Libyans, and Syrians, I mean, Syria is a bit different because uh, because Bashar al-Assad is still in place. But if you look at the at Libya and Iraq, are they Terrible. better off? Are they better off today? No, no, that's all. No, no. The, the country is destroyed. So I prefer uh, a strong, strong dictator because that's what they are. Gaddafi and uh, and uh, and Saddam Hussein were not nice guys. But foreign politics is not uh, is not a policy of moral about saying who is nice and who is nice and not nice. It's about <laughs> looking at is about looking at the country's history, their, their development, and look and and is is about being real, realistic. Being, I'm I'm a big fan of real politics, uh, of politics that is pragmatic, not politics that is driven by ideology. That's a, that's a recipe for disaster. And uh, the other conflict between uh, the French and the, the British recently is the, the, the ongoing fishing war. Uh, yeah. Who's winning, in your opinion? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the fishing war is, is a bit funny because, first of all, I, do you know that Michel Barnier was the fishing minister in France? <laughs> oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. which, which makes it even more funny because to me in... Um, in the, the fishing war is the, the the UK is winning and more than winning is they have the law behind them because and actually the threat of Boris Johnson to sue 
France in the European Court of Justice was not only, not only ironic, but also true. It's because in, in, in even as a French perspective, in, in the fishing deal, I criticize French government and Michel Barnier for being not good negotiators, not anticipating the issue of license of, of French fishermen, meaning they are out of touch with the, with the fishing industry. Because my, my understanding and my bet is that British negotiators are probably some of the best negotiators in the world and anticipated that they could play on a line of, uh, of the license, the licenses for the, the, the need to, that the, the French fishermen needed to prove that they were fishing British waters before, which is very difficult. Yeah. And so, so yeah, in the, it's just it's just British negotiators being better than French negotiators in that case, and French not anticipating that issue. So yeah, you can criticize the Brits all over, but at the end, this is just because Barney is not it's not good enough, and Macron is the same. Is and you can see that at the end they know that because they did not push forward any measures against the UK and the EU or the member states all uh, refused to, to, to align with France because they know, I think, I think it's because they know they will lose if they go to European courts. Yeah, yeah. I think if Boris Johnson goes to European courts, I think he will win. <laughs> because, because yeah, it's a dodgy trick. I agree. As a French, I would be yeah. I'm, I'm not happy with this dodgy trick. But is it when you lose a game, you don't uh, you you don't uh, flip over the table, flip the table over. You just uh, build up muscle and win the next game. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, the negotiation is just a proof that the negotiation was poorly managed on the French side. And also, uh, we were told that uh, fishing was one of the weakest points on our behalf in the deal. So if if this is coming out all right, then what is the rest of the deal going to look like in the future? If if this was supposed to be one of our uh, weakest points, one of our concessions, uh, surely the rest is uh, looking quite good. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. So we'll finish off with a bit of a philosophical question, we'll say. So uh, uh, Charles de Gaulle once said that uh, he had a certain idea of France. What for you was his idea of France and how would you describe uh, Gaullism as a, an ideology? Yeah, the, the issue is this quote is that it's very ambiguous or you can put anything behind it. <laughs> This is like everybody has their, it can apply to everything. So yeah, it's, pr it's problematic. So yeah, it's an ambiguous quote. Um, however, there are some, some basic principle of goldism that you can, that you can sum up pretty easily, which is national independence. 
patriotism and national independence. That's that's what drives, uh, what drove, sorry, what drove the uh, the goals, policies, and everything is being independent and then having your own voice uh, in the world. And that's where that's that's when France is respected, as I mentioned about the yeah the Iraq War or having your own nuclear bomb. Or, or having your own industries in everything, every aspect, um, having your, your building your own, and then then when you you are the owner of your own stuff, then then you can have you, you cannot you can be totally independent from others, and then you are respected. So yeah, that's that's what goalism is all about. Hmm. Thank you, and uh, because we're a prediction. Uh prediction specialists we'll, we'll finish with some predictions so uh for the republican nominee uh on smarkets we have uh, michel barnier who is at 2.02 javier bertrand at 2.66 and valerie pécresse at 9.2 odds who do you think will become the nominee mm, is a tough question i would say uh, if I listen to some of the people who are members that I know, is the kind really the kind of rallying behind Barney, so probably Barney. Oh, okay. But if people think about uh, who has the most chance against Macron, probably they will vote for Bertrand. So if I had to bet, I will still go with Bertrand, probably. Okay, and who would Macron fear the most, if any? So. To be, to be frank, I think Macron today is in pretty good position because he's, uh, I think he's afraid of nobody <laughs> because, yeah, he's on a good good path to get reelected, unfortunately, because all his opponents, if you look at the polls, there is not a single polls, no matter who, who is the op opponent in the second round is, uh, is tested. Not a single polls put Macron losing against Marine Le Pen, against Zemmour, against Bertrand, against Barnier, against whoever. Macron is winning. But uh, I think with when he comes up against Bertrand, that's uh, his closest opponent now. But it's last poll I saw was around 52, 48 uh. percent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Bertrand. That's that's why I say if if people think about who can beat Macron, maybe they would vote for for Bertrand because he's the highest. But at the same time, Bertrand is a very con very weak candidate for first round. I, I don't think he's going to pass the first round. I think most my hi the highest chance is Macron Le Pen or Macron Zemmour. And in the yeah. second round, and in the second round, the high the yeah I probably. Uh, a few days ago, I would say Macron's Zemmour. Now, probably, I would say Macron Le Pen is the most likely scenario because Zemmour is a bit suffering now. Do you and, think he will definitely present himself in this election? Uh, yeah, this one, this I'm sure of. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Oh, that okay. he, he went too far now. He's, it's not possible to, to withdraw at this point because. He already raised funds. He has uh, an association that is almost like a political party. He uh, and even I read his book, the, his last book, and on his last book, he's uh, giving up a lot of uh, 
off-record discussion with journalists. He, she's telling us a lot of, uh, not only journalists, but also politicians. And you don't do that when you plan to, to be a journalist again. So I think his career of journalist is quite over. Oh, okay. That's, that's, that's my personal view. And yeah, so no, he will definitely go for the election. The, the, the question is, uh, what is his chances? The problem is mine Le Pen chances are also very, uh, are very low because of her name and because of the past and because of the image uh, she has. Yeah, just the name and the image she has is, is terrible. And so she will not be able to win majority. And, and for, for Zemmour, he probably has better chance. He will be better, better challenging in the debate for sure. Um, but sure. at the moment, and, and she's on the right, so we don't know where she's going to end. But at the moment, Macron is still the top seed of this election. Oh dear, oh dear then. Well, we've, we've <laughs> got to hope for a, a miracle then. Or, uh, but I can't remember uh, any French election in recent history which hasn't had a big scandal which has destroyed a, a candidate. So. We never know something might happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's still five months before the election. You still have a lot of things can happen. But at at the point now, if if you vote if we voted today, Macron will get reelected. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, uh we've come to the end. Uh it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, uh, Mr. Frexit. Thank you. Pleasure, pleasure all mine. Great. So, uh, yeah, so this Congress will be voting on its candidates in the next few days. Uh, we also have a by-election, uh, two by-elections coming up uh, next month in England. So they should be interesting. Uh, I will be making an episode for the North uh, Stropshire election, the, the Slees by-election, it's being called. So uh, mm -hmm. join me uh, next week for that. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye.